Hello, it's TechBiter Worldwide for the week of October 19th, 2008. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news and a lot less than an hour. That's because we leave out the sports, the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. You know, sometimes people miss things. More than a decade ago, on a Sunday night, I was in New York City just wandering around midtown Manhattan. There was a distinct odor of burning wood in the air. No sign of a fire, just a smell. What's burning, I asked a cop. He told me the problem was a fire in a switching station at 125th Street. That was a long way uptown from where I was. That's the station in Harlem where Metro North trains make the first of two stops in Manhattan. The second is at Grand Central Terminal. A lot of people get off Metro North trains at the 125th Street station, transfer to subways. So I expected a gigantic mess on Monday morning. So did the news media. Instead, what I found was a perceived mess. The news segments on WCBS and WINS, the two news stations, suggested transit gridlock on the subways and trains. However, when it came time for the traffic reports, the news was that there was a maximum of a 15-minute delay at 125th Street. The news and traffic people apparently didn't talk to each other because the reports continued like that all morning. The news guy is saying it was transit gridlock. The traffic guy is saying, no big deal. The same kind of thing happened recently at the Beijing Olympics. And this does have some relationship to technology. Hang in there. The big news wasn't that Mark Phelps won eight gold medals, or that the U.S. edged out China on the total number of medals, or even the hundreds of personal tragedies and triumphs that are always told around the Olympics. The big news was that nothing much happened. The Chinese government and China's TV folks were afraid. NBC was afraid that global interest in the Beijing event would overwhelm their video servers. More than 100 million people around the globe accessed various online sites during the Olympics. See, I said we'd get around to technology. Even though there was a lot of complaining in the U.S. that foreign sources were often blocked here in the U.S., But overall, everything worked as intended. Here's an interesting data point. The estimated 1.3 billion worldwide Internet users were more than four times the number of potential users that tried to access Mark Cuban's Broadcast.com airing of Victoria's Secret Show about a decade ago. Uh, I would have been in that list of potential users, but I never tried to look at the Victoria's Secret Show, nor did a lot of people. The media streamed more than 2,200 hours of live competition in 25 sports, and more than 112 video streams were often available simultaneously. All told, 336 streams could have been sent out simultaneously, and that content was available in 77 countries, of which the United States, because of the agreement with NBC, was not one. Elsewhere on the planet, viewers didn't have to settle for NBC's version of the Olympics. They could view what they wanted to. Actually, the Olympics gave communications workers of America a great platform to promote the fact that when it comes to real-time download capacity to the home, that's the last mile, the U.S. really doesn't stack up very well. We are 15th in terms of broadband to the home. 15th. European and some Asian countries are far ahead of where the United States is. And in fact, most of the industrialized nations have sprinted past the U.S. to deliver high-speed, low-cost service to the home. For example, South Korea has been the gold standard for service for years. 
four European Union countries have been deploying fiber faster than the U.S. Denmark, Finland, the Netherlands have all added more than 30% in the last year. Corporate media fears this change because the Koreans increasingly are watching TV shows and other entertainment online rather than tuning in to the traditional media sources. This is kind of like podcasting versus radio. In Western Europe and the Pacific Basin, people are more inclined to watch their television and other entertainment over the Internet. About 50% of the broadband users now prefer online convenience and experience. Users here in the U.S. are slowly finding that having those choices in time and content is very satisfying, but we're still pretty far behind the rest of the world. Watch out for high-definition TV, though. TV shows around the globe are going to high-def, and high-def uses about seven times the bandwidth that standard-definition TV uses. Prior to the Olympics, China's government dropped a bunch of money on preparation. The Chinese and some other countries strung more high-speed fiber-optic cable under the Pacific between Asia and North America. Most of those cables were laid around 2001 when everyone was starting a new company to take advantage of the overwhelming demand for Internet traffic, and every venture capitalist was throwing money at the new ventures. A lot of that cable stayed dark until recently. But the Internet infrastructure isn't free, any more than highways are free or bridges are free. The Internet gives businesses the most direct, most personalized, most individualized means of talking directly to you about their products and services. Perhaps they should be paying for the privilege of trying to grab your attention, interest, and checkbook. But the way things are headed, it looks like it's going to be us who will be paying to be spammed. By the way, my lead comments, the ones about the New York City subway fire, resulted in my doing a little extra research. I tried to find the account of that fire, so I looked in the archives of the New York Times, and I couldn't find the story. I found several stories about fires in and around Penn Station and Grand Central Terminal, as well as a lot of stories about track fires, and that made me realize that subway fires are a lot more common than I thought. But I could not find an account of the one that WINS and WCBS made sound like such a big deal all those years ago. All I really remember is that I got into town on a Saturday or a Sunday. I remember that the weather was warm, and I know that it would have been between about 1985 and 1998. I traveled to New York City fairly often in those days. Many of the accounts I found of fires were in the right time period, but they occurred on Wednesdays or Thursdays or in February. So apparently that big deal fire wasn't that big a deal. I watched a movie the other day, one of those ones that really makes you think hard. Die Hard 4. (laughs) I know that the writers have to advance the plot somehow, and sometimes the only way out is some sort of deus ex machina. But it really shouldn't be that hard for movie makers to at least get their basic technology right. Getting it wrong breaks the suspension of disbelief, and that is an essential part of enjoying a movie. So let's take a look at Die Hard 4. Uh, this, of course, is just a typical airhead plot with the typical blow up scenes, typical to that particular property. Overall, it was a fun movie because of the heroic Bruce Willis, who played the part of John McClane, of course. The evil Timothy Oliphant played Thomas Gabriel, and the constantly amazed Justin Long, who played Matt Farrell. One of the first things that seemed a little odd was the office of the FBI Cybersecurity Division in Washington, D.C. looked a lot like a TV set or a movie set. I don't think I've ever seen a government office that looks quite like that. 
But let's move along to the technology. The movie starts with McLean rescuing his daughter, who doesn't want to be rescued, from her boyfriend, who isn't her boyfriend. You following this so far? After she stomps off to her dorm room and the not-a-boyfriend drives away, McLean's car radio summons him. McLean is a New York City detective, and they need him to pick up Farrell and take him to Homeland Security. The only problem is that the radio isn't a police radio. It's a two-meter amateur rig made by ADI. The frequency shown is 143.30 megahertz. That's not licensed for police use. Virtually all police radios today operate in the 800 megahertz range, and they don't display a frequency. So then when McLean and Farrell get to Washington, the bad guys spot him using a device that you'll have to take a look at on the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. It might actually be showing what's happening on various talk groups within a real 800 megahertz system, or it might just be some spectrum analyzer that's displaying audio from a variety of frequencies. Whatever it is, it's not a device that would make it possible for the bad guys to locate our heroes. Well, the bad guys, of course, get the upper hand early on. They're able to shut down all of Washington by jamming the traffic signals and turning off all the cell phones. Hacker Farrell pulls out his little Nokia cell phone and immediately reprograms it. takes about six seconds so that it will communicate via satellite. Have you ever seen a sat phone? They're just a little more complicated than this to set up, and they operate on a whole different bunch of frequencies. Well, then they needed to get to West Virginia... So they were able to hijack a car by using the onboard monitoring system to sweet-talk the command center into starting the car. The drive from Washington, now remember all the traffic signals are out and traffic is completely jammed up, to West Virginia appears to take about half an hour. So what were the bad guys doing in West Virginia? Well, they were planning to shut off all the electricity to the entire eastern United States, and to do that, they needed to visit the control center, such as the one AEP operates here in Columbus. Well, it appears that the controls for the entire eastern part of the United States, the entire power grid, is managed by a Windows application, and it appears that it can be shut down by simply clicking Yes on a dialog box. (laughs) While on their way from one place to another, they had to stop in Baltimore to see the warlock, who appears to live in a basement, but that basement has extremely high ceilings, about 12 feet. The warlock is one of Farrell's hacker friends, and despite all of his hacker gear, he keeps what he calls a CB radio nearby, just in case. You know you're going to see this CB radio later in the plot, except that it really isn't a CB radio. Well, more accurately, it might be a CB radio. It's got a piece of paper stuck to the front of it showing the frequency. 66.6 megahertz. Okay, clever. 666. I see the significance. Am I impressed? No. 66.6 megahertz is no CB frequency. CB radios operate in the 11 meter band on frequencies around 27 megahertz. Meanwhile, back at the power plant, the bad guys are bringing their most sophisticated gear into play. A palm pilot sitting on a keyboard that's apparently not connected to anything. And then later, here comes that CB radio again. McLean needs to reach out to the warlock. Conveniently, the vehicle he's in at the time happens to have a CB radio that transmits on 66.6 megahertz. It's apparently another piece of amateur gear. This time, it's from ICOM. The frequency, by the way, and I checked, is right in the middle of the low part of the VHF television band. In fact, I think it would be in use by TV channel 4. So it's really pretty unlikely that McLean would be able to reach out to the warlock this way. 
He does, of course, and the warlock is able to patch him right through to Homeland Security instantly, even though he doesn't know Homeland Security's phone number, and even though the telephone system supposedly is still completely non-functional. Well, if I give you any more, I'll give away the plot, so I'll stop there. How might they have gotten this right? Well, amateur radio in place of a police radio. Easy. Borrow a police radio. The LAPD would certainly have cooperated. If not, how about Hollywood police? A standard cell phone turns into a sat phone. This is definitely a deus ex machina. Make up something more believable, guys. The cell phone companies, for example, might keep certain frequencies available at all time for government emergencies. Farrell might know the code to open those up. Now, whether that's true or not, it's a lot more believable than turning a cell phone into a sat phone. How about a Windows-based application runs the entire eastern power grid? Do a little research. Find somebody with a computer that actually controls something fairly large and complex. The power companies probably will not agree to show you their gear, but you can find a control room for a factory. Examine the setup, then add a little realism. The CB on 66.6 megahertz? Forget that 666 reference. It's not that funny. Use a real CB radio. Use a real CB channel. How about Palm devices as controllers? Forget it. Instead, make it a super small notebook computer. These currently exist. They have enough power, possibly, to accomplish what needed to be done. And they might even have enough disk space to perform the download that the bad guys are trying to perform. Well, even with all the distractions, it was still an amusing movie. And that's the end of my excursion into the land of film critics. In nerdly news, how about clickjacking? Is this a big threat? Maybe you've heard about this in the last week or so. The current issue of Windows Secrets newsletter, Stuart Johnson, writes about the relatively new threat of clickjacking, says that all browsers are vulnerable to the threat. A simple click can result in your computer being infected with all sorts of nasties. Johnson suggests some things you can do to make your browser safer. The problems turn out to be hidden deep inside browsers and within the technologies that are used to provide a richer browsing experience. Flash Player, for example, JavaScript, Silverlight. At its most basic, the threat involves simply placing a button behind a button on a website. Clicking the Safe button, a link to a new page, for example, or to send a form or display a video, would also cause the underlying button to be clicked. So far, there have been only proof-of-concept activities. That is, nothing has been found in the wild. And that may be somewhat reassuring, but the threat does exist, and all threats will be exploited sooner or later, and in most cases, sooner. So here's an interesting thought from the article. A hacker can use the Flash player to take over a PC's webcam and microphone. Imagine the implication of stalkers eavesdropping on your laptop's built-in camera and mic. You may think your computer is just sitting there doing nothing, but it might be watching you and listening to you. If you disable all plugins and turn off scripting, you'll be safer, but not entirely safe. And many websites won't work at all. JavaScript, for example, commonly used on websites, including mine, to provide navigation, forms validation, animation, and such. Adobe has a patch that reduces the threats posed by Flash, and if you use Firefox, as I do, you can install the NoScript plugin. This plugin blocks scripting except for sites that you approve. If you arrive at a page that requires Flash or scripting, you'll need to tell NoScript to allow it. But that's a small inconvenience, and it's far less than the inconvenience of ridding your machine of malware. 
A good source of information about how to protect your computer is at the Computer Emergency Readiness Team, CERT, part of Homeland Security. And you'll find a link to that site from the TechBinder Worldwide website. You'll also find a link to Johnson's full article, which you might find an interesting one to read. Get your MacBooks, $999. Okay, so that's really $1,000. And this is one of my pet peeves. I wish marketers would just simply tell the truth. Don't shave a buck off the price so it can be a three-digit number. Just leave it a nice round one zero zero zero. Are nines really all that more attractive than zeros? The good news is that Apple will sell you a notebook computer for $1,000. The bad news is you won't like it unless you spend some more money. That $1,000 Mac compares with low-end Windows computers that can be had for about half that, around $500, sometimes less. For your $1,000, you get a notebook computer with a 2.1 gigahertz Intel Core 2 Duo processor, 1 gigabyte of DDR2 memory, a 120 gigabyte hard drive, and Intel GMA X3100 graphics. So what's wrong with that, you might wonder? Well, the CPU is slow by today's standards, and you need at least 2 gigabytes of RAM. The disk size is okay, but you'll probably want more. And Intel's GMA X3100 graphics subsystem will frustrate you with its speed, or perhaps I should say with its slowness. So the first thing you'll want to do is add at least another 1 gigabyte of RAM, 75 bucks. But I would really recommend 4 gigabytes of RAM. That's going to cost you an extra $225. You may want a larger hard drive for another $50 to $150. At that point, you might as well opt for the 2.0 gigahertz system. Next step up, that's an Intel Core 2 Duo with 2 gigabytes of DDR3 memory, a 160 gigabyte hard drive, and much better NVIDIA GeForce 9400M graphics. But now you're at $1,300 or in Apple speak, $1299. You could easily spend another $400 on more memory and a larger hard drive, and in any case, you'll want to drop $200 to $250, depending on how you configure the machine, on the Apple Care Protection Plan. Notebook computers are one of the few devices for which a service contract actually does make sense. So it appears that Apple's notebook computers still come with a significant price disadvantage when compared to standard Windows-only notebooks. Or do they? Let's think through this. Because Apple's notebooks now run on Intel processors, you could very easily install both OS X and Windows on the same machine. So instead of buying two computers, you'd need to buy only one. And if you should want to add Linux to the machine, well, you could do that too. Now you've got three choices when you start the machine. If you really want a dream, how about a MacBook Pro with a 2.5 gigahertz Intel Core 2 Duo CPU, a 17-inch widescreen monitor, 4 gigabytes of memory, a 320 gigabyte hard drive, and NVIDIA's GeForce 8600M GT with 512 megabytes of RAM, $2,800. You might, although I probably wouldn't, spend another $250 to kick the CPU up from 2.5 gigahertz to 2.6. You're definitely going to want the service contract on this one, 350 bucks. And that would bring the total price for the machine I would love to have to about $3,198, or $3,200 if you like zeros. By the way, when you buy that machine, make sure you get my shipping address right. Thanks for listening. This has been TechBiter Worldwide for the week of October 19th, 2008. 
I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techviter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.